Go ahead and uh, read, despite that distraction. Sherry, we are glad to have you back. That was your mom, Eula May, right? Yeah. All right, folks, so let's, let's get things rolling here. And uh, I'll start reading in Matthew 26, verse, starting in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They've, they've, ended the, they've had the Lord's Supper, so we looked at two weeks ago. And to end it up, they sung a hymn, and they left the upper room, and leaving uh, the Jerusalem proper, they went to the Mount of Olives. It's right across. It's about a 10-minute walk. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. (laughs) Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, before dawn of the next morning, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went away with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to, his, to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for what we have here in in the words of of Matthew, the the gospel about your life, Lord Jesus. And and while we see uh, immense uh, failure and pride on the part of the disciples, we also see in stark contrast the faithfulness, the, the commitment you have to the Father's will. And Lord, we also see that in the midst of this too, the promise of restoration for your disciples. We see your mercy, your compassion. And uh, so Lord, as we focus in on these, uh, this, these final hours, and Lord, and as we get a glimpse into your heart and what you are experiencing, Lord, I pray that you would use uh, what we see here to, to confront our own hearts, to confront our own pride, And Lord, to grow in us a a growing awareness of our own uh, need for you, the humility we need to have. And Lord, so because because of this, that we would have a a more humble view of ourselves and a a greater urgency to pray to you, to go to you all the time with every need that we have. So Lord, thank you for what we're about to enjoy as we walk through this. And Lord, I pray that your word would be clear and it would pierce down into the, to our inner man, that you would judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And Lord, continue to shape us and grow us and mold us into the people you want us to be for your glory, for your kingdom, for your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in 1912, I love sports, and so when I saw this illustration, I always try to find illustrations to kind of help us kick into the passage. Uh, I love this one because it was about the Rose Bowl. Any college football fans out there? Anybody? I love college football. Well, back in 1929, I wasn't alive. I wasn't. But this story growing up was a famous story. 
In 29, it was uh, uni uh, the uni University of California, and it was against Georgia Tech, uh, the Rose Bowl. And during the first half, uh, uh, there was a fumble, and one of the, U the University of California guys, uh, his name is Roy, Roy Regals. He recovered the fumble, and, but in his confusion, he started running the wrong direction. Wrong way, Roy. So he's running, but one of his teammates caught up to him and tackled him before he could enter the end zone because it would be a touchdown for the other team. And in the ensuing plays, the, the University of California had to punt, but because they were so close to their own end zone, Georgia Tech blocked the punt and got the, and it's called a safety when it goes out of the end zone. So they got two points. So at halftime, halftime sounds and, and, and they go into the locker room and Roy sits in the corner. He's embarrassed. He's crying. Here's a guy, he's a college kid. You know, we've all done dumb things, but he's a college kid. He's in the corner crying, and, and, and everyone's sitting down. They're waiting for their coach to say something, and he didn't say hardly anything. Okay, so we've got Roy. He's just, he's just broken. But here's what the coach did say. Coach Price, he looked at the team and said simply, men, the same team that played the first half will start the second the players got up and started out all but Regals, Roy Regals. He did not budge. The coach looked back and called to him again. Still, he didn't move. Coach Price went over to where Regals sat and said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same team that played the first half will start the second. Then Roy looked up and his cheeks were wet with a strong man's tears. Coach, he said, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the, this, this college. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. Then Coach Price reached out and put his hand on Regal's shoulder and said to him, Roy, get up and get on back. The game is only half over. And Roy Regal's went back, and those tech men will tell you that they had never seen a man play football as Roy Regal's played that second half. How many of you have failed? Don't you love it that our God is a God of second chances? I love this picture of a, of a story of a coach who saw, who saw beyond the scoreboard. And, and he, he did this for this man. Because what a great picture, right? He, uh, we have in a passage here, I, I put it on your outlines there. I put the king's men, their fallen failure. And they did. We're going to see in the, in the coming weeks how they ter terribly blew it. But we're going to see the beginnings of that fall, and we're going to see them even failing in this passage. But we're also going to see the hope of the restoration that is in Christ Jesus. We'll even have a taste of it here. So I pray that this morning that we're challenged to, one, to learn more about ourselves and to be more honest about ourselves and let the Bible tell us about us. Because the world says, oh, you're basically good, right? The Bible has a different picture. Yes, we have the image of God in us, but it's a tar tarnished image, and we have a sin nature. We're not basically good. We need, bless you, we need the Lord to change our hearts, but we also need to be honest about how our hearts can still betray us, and we'll see that in this passage this morning, where there's also, there's total realistic, biblical realism about the heart of man, and yet also in the midst of this, we also have a lot of hope, and there's a lot of encouragement for us in this. So I pray that as we walk through this that we will uh, grow because of it. So first of all, in verses 30 through 35, we're going to see the king's men and where they fall. All right. So first of all, it's prophesied. Jesus prophesied to them about the fall, their fall as well as their restoration in verses 30 through 32. And it goes like this, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And what's so funny is that that's just a little line. And that's, that ends up their Seder, the Lord's Supper that we looked at two weeks ago, where Jesus says, this is the cup of my blood and all that. Well, they would close up. Every Seder, every Passover meal was, was finished by the leader of that group who would sing Psalms 115 through 118. It's in your Bibles. And that was called the great Hallel. Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. But that was the traditional thing. You end up Seder by, by going through Psalms 115 through 118. The leader would sing the verse, and then the people would respond, Hallelujah. That's how they would do it. 
all the way through, and that, that would be the close. So when they sung a hymn, that's Jesus leading his men in a closing hymn, and they walked out to the Mount Olives. But look at this. It, there's, it's ironic because he is singing what everyone understood to be messianic psalms, psalms that talked about and prophesied about the coming Messiah. Let me just show you a few of these things. So first of all, in, psalm, uh, in the first part, these psalms have, have different verses about his sufferings and his death. Psalm 116, verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol, or the grave, laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Remember, this is Jesus, God in the flesh, the Word come as man, and he's singing these songs to his disciples. And what is he about to suffer? Betrayal, beatings, and then the cross. Imagine, he's singing this, and these men are singing about because that's what you did every year during the Seder. That's what you did. But can you imagine what he's thinking as he's singing this? Imagine that. Remember, we're supposed to go back and realize what's going on in this situation. So this little phrase, they sung a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives. It's packed. It's ironic. Verse 10 of 116, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The great Hallel... 115 through 118 talks about suffering and death. How's that? Hallel means praise, right? (laughs) They're praising about suffering and death. Well, it's because the Messiah had to suffer and die. And he's singing this. It also talks about his sacrifice at the end of 118 and verse 27. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. It's talking about the lamb that would be sacrificed. And festal just means festival or the feast of of weeks or the feast of the unleavened bread. So it talks about his sacrifice. It also talks in verse, uh, in chapter 116 and 118 of his resurrection. So he's again, he's singing and and there's prophecies that, that he was going to fulfill in the next hours and days. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected, and how did, the, how did he get rejected? Because remember, he claimed that earlier as a prophecy about himself. What was, how was he rejected? What was the ultimate rejection that the religious leaders did to him? Killed him, right? So they rejected the, the Messiah who had come, and Jesus says, I am the stone that you will reject, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In some translations, the chief cornerstone. So it talks about his resurrection. It also talks about his his being the salvation that God provides. And it's, it's actually the very same verse that was shouted by the crowds during his triumphal entry. Verses 25 and 26 of 118. Save us. That In Hebrew, that's Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. He's singing this to his men. They're replying hallelujah back, and he's about to go fulfill this. These prophecies, you know, David wrote this, you know, about a thousand years before Jesus, and now it's going to unfold. They don't realize it, but he is. Imagine him singing this and the emotion with which he's singing it. As a man, remember, Jesus was with God and man. Imagine in his humanity what he would be feeling at this point. So that's just one little verse, and it's so rich. As they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus, he knew what was going to happen. We have him here displaying even his deity. He has a foreknowledge of all these events, his sufferings. Four times previously, he had said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and be betrayed and be handed over to be beaten and killed. And so he has foreknowledge, but then he also says, and you're going to betray me. Matter of fact, it is prophesied by Zechariah. So if you look at prophet, here's Zechariah 13, verse 7. We'll read it in a second. But what you need to understand is the first six verses of that prophecy are prophecies by God against the sick, evil shepherds of Israel 
Then verse 7 has this passage in verses 8 and 9 talk about when the, the shepherd would come back to save Israel and redeem his people. So it's a very important passage, and that's what Jesus is quoting. He's telling them, you're going to fall away because it's been prophesied and it's going to be fulfilled very soon. He says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Again, this is God speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The man, what it says, the man standing next to me, that was a Hebrew-ism, uh, a way of saying the person who is my equal. So if the Lord of hosts is saying, I'm going to raise a sword against this guy who's standing next to me, what is this guy supposed to be then? He's God. And he calls him my shepherd. There's another one of those passages in the Old Testament that refer to a man who's not just a man. This is another one. And Jesus is saying, this is being fulfilled. And by the way, who strikes this shepherd, this good shepherd? Who strikes? God himself does. What does Isaiah 53 say? It pleased God to crush him. It was God's plan all along. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Well, yes, they did. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Oh, yes, they did. But who really killed Jesus? God did. It was a plan formed before the creation of the world. So who's to blame? We are. Who's the, who's the cause? Well, God is. How do you put those together? We let God take care of that. But we can't, leave, we can't because there's some people who, oh, Jews, they're the Christ killers. Uh, well, you, in one sense, you can say that, but in another sense, you cannot say that. Jesus went willingly because he's fulfilling prophecy. It was God's plan all along. And then we do have in this little phrase that says, and, and, I, and after that, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. This is the promise of their restoration. He says, you're going to fall away, but by the way, afterwards, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. He, he has promised them to be restored even here. And they miss it because well, how do they respond? Oh, no, oh, Peter, oh, no, I would never do that. And that's really a taste of just the pride of Peter, but also of the disciples. How many of you struggle with pride ever? Everyone raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. We all do. We want to be self-sufficient. In salvation, oh, yes, I need you to save me, God, because I know I can't earn it. And then after we get saved, hey, God, watch what I can do. And that's when we get into trouble. And that's what's happening here with the disciples. The prideful will fall. We see that in verses 33 to 35. Peter answered him, Jesus, saying, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So we can't miss this. This is Peter's arrogance. Peter's already blown it a few times. At this point, do you think he would realize, you know what? Uh, uh Uh-oh. He's saying that this is going to happen. Every time I've gone against his words, I've lost. I've been wrong. But yet in his pride. But again, I love that this is in here. I love that we have these disciples saying what they've said and doing what they do because I'm just like them. Are you? Okay, if you are, good, we're, all, we're in the right place. If you're not, if you're perfect, I don't want to ruin you. <laughs> but we see Peter's arrogance, his brashness. He's got such a high view of himself. Oh, did I switch? Yes, I did. Good. And then we also see the, the disciples, or we see that, first of all, Jesus, Peter, his, his arrogance is opposed. Okay, Jesus right away says, Peter, not only will you fall away like the rest, but you yourself are going to deny me. You're going to go to a whole nother level of falling away. And, you know, we all know this one, right? Pride comes before what? The fall. And then the disciples, they join right in, don't they? Oh, we would never do this, Lord. Again, it's so funny because if you read John's account of the, of the Last Supper, Jesus actually had to get up and wash their feet to teach them what? Humility, because you know what they were doing? They were arguing about who would be the greatest, who would sit at the Lord's you know, right hand in the coming kingdom. Folks, that's not humility. 
And even towards the end, he'd, he'd, he'd talk to them about this. They'd had this similar argument several times. And yet, here they are, still showing. They haven't learned about themselves yet. Their repeated arrogance. And, and here's where we got to switch into, this is one of those little, you know, little, here's, here's a moment for application. The Bible is very realistic and it's very straightforward about who we are in our hearts. And as, as a Christians, you have to embrace this, okay? This is not a feel-good moment, but it's so important. If you want to grow as a Christian, there's one thing that you really, there's one important aspect that we often want to push off is that our hearts are desperately wicked. Our hearts are prone to caring about me first. I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. Jesus How did he, what kind of heart did he display? God, your will be done. Why? I'm going to go to the cross to die for them. He put others first. Put God's will first and others first. We are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. You recognize that hymn? O come thou fount of every blessing. It's such a good line because it's true. And then the, he goes on to say, bind my wander, my, my wandering heart to thee. I, and I pray that too. My heart is prone to wander. Your heart is prone to wander. Yes, we're new creations in Christ. You, you know that, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, you're a new creation in Christ. But how come I still struggle with sin? Right? Is that you still struggle? It's, yes, we do. Our struggle is a real thing. Romans 6, you guys should all read Romans chapter 6 and then Romans chapter 7, all right? Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about how it gives a great picture. Am I on the right slide here? Yes. It has a great picture of how, how when you become a Christian, there's a transfer that happens. It says you've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of light. You've gone from an old ruler to a new ruler. You've gone from one identity, enemy of God, to now part of the family of God, at peace with God and one of his own. Then Romans 6 goes on to say, hey, don't go back offering yourself to the old kingdom, to the old ways, to the old man. Don't offer your members of your body to unrighteousness. See, as a Christian... You have a choice now not to sin. Sin's dominion, that's a kingdom term, sin's reign and sin's rule over you has been vanquished. Who did that? Jesus did. But while sin's power over us has been vanquished, sin's presence remains. And here's the deal. Our hearts want to do what it wants to do, and sin is very enticing. But here's the deal. Sin is called a deceitful desire. Why is it deceitful? Because it promises things it can never deliver. But here, So Romans 6 is all about, look, you have a choice now. Okay? And Paul was very realistic. He knew that you would struggle. Matter of fact, Romans 7 is about his struggle. So Romans 7 is such a great passage because Paul describes his own struggle with sin. But here's the deal. It shows he has a humble view about himself, a realistic view. And you need that. You need that. And we'll see why that's so important even in the next passage with Jesus here. But listen to Romans 7, and I'm not going to read all of 14 through 25. I'm just going to highlight verses 15 through 17 and then down to 22 on. For I do not understand my own actions. This is Paul as a Christian. For I do not do what I want, I do the very, but I do the very thing I hate. Do you feel like that? Do you identify with what he just said there? Me too. Now, if I do do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. It just shows that I'm sinful and I need help. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the swin, the, the sin that dwells within me. See, as a Christian, you still have sin that's in you. It's not your, it, you are a new creation, but as long as we live on this earth, we're going to, we still have to deal with a certain fallenness of our flesh. I'll drop down to verse 22. For I delight in the law of God mentally, in my inner being. 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Do you get that? I want to, I, and I know God's ways are best, and I know He's the right way, but there's a war waging. Do you ever feel that? He's describing that. He understands the struggle. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever felt that? I just stink, God. Oh, man. Do you ever feel that? I do. I do. But he's describing, he says, there is a struggle. There is a struggle. So the Bible gives a very realistic view. And we see in Peter, when he says, oh, I'd never fall away, his heart is revealed. And what's being revealed? Humility of total pride and arrogance. We, too, need to hear the warning. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. And this is just talking about life in the body of Christ. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Folks, don't ever compare yourself to others. Look to the cross. Say, Lord, I need you. I have a heart that is prone to wander. And, and the disciples here in this passage are not showing it. So I don't want to leave you there because I want to go to what is the pathway of restoration because Jesus tells them, I'm going to restore you. But I want to tell you about another passage, James 4, 1 through 10, about the pathway of restoration. Okay, there's a downward spiral in this passage, that's the first five verses. Then the upward climb of, of returning to God is in the, in the second part of this passage. So listen to this. First of all, we'll see the downward spiral, okay? And it leads to destruction. And here's where we fall prey to our lusts, our wants, and letting them rule over this. And folks, we have to own that this is true of us. The world doesn't want you to believe this. Many churches won't teach this, but we'll say it straight up. You've heard we struggle with sin. It's a real thing. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Verse 1. Is it not this that your passions, your lusts are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You guys recognize this ever you? When you get in fights with others... It's usually because we don't get what we want, and they're getting in the way, essentially. And he's describing exactly this. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why? Because it's all about you, to spend it on your passions, your lusts. You adulterous people. He doesn't just say you sinful people. He calls them adulterous why? Because they're worshiping their own selves and their own wants instead of the God of the universe. And the Bible would call that spiritual adultery. So when you get locked into sin and get into conflicts with others, at your heart, James 4 is calling you an adulterer. Do you guys get that? Again, he's using shocking language to shock us. This isn't about non-Christians. This is talking about Christians. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the war world is enmity or war with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell within us? Where there's a war inside. And he's saying, look, when you give in to this and you go after your own lust, you are now a friend of the world. You're an adulterer and you're at war with God. If you're at war with God, who's going to win? Surrender quick. I've said that in counseling. Somebody will just tell me, I know God wants me to be happy. That's why I'm doing this. And I'll tell you, I've got to warn you. You're making yourself an enemy of God, and he will win, but it's going to hurt. That's, is this biblical realism? We've got to be honest. We have to be real, you guys, about this. It's, this is not a feel-good moment, but here the feel-good starts next. There is an upward spiral, and it starts. It talks about the blessing that can be ours. Verse 6, but, love that, that little word. I love that, but. But he gives more grace. I want his grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the who? The humble. 
Submit yourselves. I probably should do that. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. <laughs> James is cutting no slack here, is he? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What you have to do, understand here is, first of all, God is opposed to the proud. When Peter says, I'll never fall away, right away Jesus opposed him. That's pride, Peter. Matter of fact, you're not just going to fall away, you're going to do it worse than the others. But if you humble yourself, what does that mean to humble yourself in this context? To confess your sin, to repent of it, and to turn back on your knees to God. Please help me, God. And here's the deal. The, this, these, some of these words towards the end are hard to hear, but it says don't rush the process of change. What does it say? Look, I got the pointer on here, I think. I don't know how to do it. Oh, wrong one. Jake. So this part right here, be wretched and mourn and weep. Why would he say that? Because repentance only can happen when there's an appropriate sense of, I blew it. I have sinned against the holy God. I have trampled on the blood of Christ. You guys, it's very clear we need. Don't rush through the process. Our culture says be happy at all costs. Freud, that was his big deal. Hey, avoid pain at all costs. Avoid guilt. Search for happiness. The Bible says no. When you're turning from your sin, it should hurt. I don't mean self-hurting. I'm not talking about that. But you should understand that repentance means to understand how deep your sin was and who you've hurt, the people involved, and especially against God. When I'm, when I'm counseling for, I'm talking to friends and they've sinned, I don't rush to say, well, it's okay. Because ultimately, you know what? It's really not okay. You have sinned. I have sinned. There's an appropriate sense of grief when we've sinned against God. See, what we're, we're too quick to do is we want to point at others. Yeah, I did this, but they did that. Yeah, I did this, but they did it worse. Does that make sense? Do you guys ever try to defend yourself that way? Ed, raise your hand. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, we all do. But notice that the, there is a pathway to repentance and to restoration, but humility says, wow, I blew it. I sinned. I'm the one. But then what does it say? What does he do to those who humble themselves? It says he will exalt you in due time. He will. He'll lift you up. So it's not that you have to do a certain amount of crawling around on your knees on broken glass, contra Catholics, but there is a sense of what real repentance is, okay? But there is an upward spiral, and there's blessing when you, re you seek restoration with the Lord. So let's move to the next part, too, because here we're going to see them actually fail the Lord, they failed him at his time of need, and they're going to fail him even worse. And it's worse because of what they did right here in this passage now. So in verses 36 through 46, first of all, we see the Savior facing the weight of the cross. He knew it was ahead of him. Look at, the, look at what it was doing to him. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and that's at the foot of the Mount of Olives. In Gethsemane, it's still there today, you can look up and you, the Jerusalem wall is right there. You can almost throw a rock and hit it, and you can see the top of the temple. The temple in Jesus' time was bigger than the Dome of the Rock that's there now. When I was in Gethsemane, looking up, I could see the top of the Dome of the Rock. So you could see the temple. When Jesus was there, he's praying, the temple is right there. He knows he's going to be tried, and he's going to be the sacrifice that's supposed to go on that altar. He knows it's coming. He's right there. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So, hey, you guys stay over here. I'm going to go over there and pray. And taking with him the inner circle, Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, stirred up in anguish. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. It's, I just feel like the weight, it could, I feel so sad it could kill me. 
Remain here and watch with me. And also, too, we know from the other passages, what, what was the physical sign of his, of his anguish? He was praying with what? Sweats. He was sweating blood. And that is a physical condition of extreme anxiety and pressure. That's how much this was pressing on him. Now, was, what do you think he was concerned about? Was it the fact that he was going to be, you know, beaten and, and you know, put on a cross and, and betrayed by his men? I'd say to some degree, he's a human. Remember, he was human. So that probably hurt. But you know what was going to be the worst? Is that for the first time, the sinless God-man was going to take the punishment for sin on himself. He didn't become a sinner. Some people teach that, no, he didn't become a sinner, but he was treated as if he had committed every sin. And here's the deal. God was going to forsake him, turn away. The first time in all of history... Jesus did that for us. That's what's laying on his heart. That's what's ahead. And we see him in his humanity experiencing the pain, experiencing this. All right, good, I'm in the right spot. He's, he's got a, a, a trouble. He's facing the cross now. Yes, betrayal, and he's going to be accused falsely. There's going to be shame. There's going to be physical pain. But the worst was when God had to turn away. And again, we'll see in this passage, this passage where there's a series of contrasts, we'll see the faithfulness of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, admitting his need to his disciples. The disciples, oh, we'll never fall, Jesus. Jesus here, my, my heart is hurting. I'm sorrowful to the point of death. There's a series of contrasts. He goes to Peter, or goes to the disciples back three times. How many times did, did Peter deny him? Three times, we're, we're supposed to notice the contrast here. And how faithful was Jesus to the trial ahead of him? Faithful all the way. But what did he do to prepare for the trial? He prayed. What did the disciples do in preparation for the trial? They fell asleep. That's a very big contrast that we cannot miss. Ephesians 6, I'm jumping way ahead on my notes. I know if you're following us, some of you guys get my notes. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, if you know that passage, the main topic of that passage is what? Spiritual warfare. You put on the armor of God, it's about spiritual warfare. It ties the, the, belt, you know, the belt of righteousness, the breastplate of um, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, right? The sword of the spirit. But how does it end up? Three times prayer is mentioned as part of spiritual warfare. You want to fight well and, and, and stand firm for the Lord, like verse 10 and 11 say? You've got to pray. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's modeling that for us. And he even asked the disciples, he tells them three times, watch, stand over here while I go to pray. Watch for me. He's asking them to be watchmen over him. His own team deserted him and blew it. They fell asleep at the wheel. I jumped way off of my notes here. But you get what I'm getting at. They're, they... they He's facing the weight of the cross. They're supposed to watch with him and help him by praying and, and praying for the own temp, their own temptation that's about to come as he warns them and they fall asleep. And by the way, it's about maybe 10 to midnight, 10 p.m. to midnight. You're like, oh, well, maybe they're just tired. Well, here's the deal. During the Seder meal and afterwards, it was, it was customary for people to stay up to reenact what happened Back in Exodus chapter 12, it was customary to stay up late and to sing more praises and to encourage each other because that's what the Israelites did in Exodus chapter 12, back 1,400 years earlier. So they had no excuse, and yet they fell asleep because they were so arrogant. But we'll be see, because of their weakness of the flesh, they're going to fail miserably soon. But let's just look at this real quick because we need to own this about the weakness of the flesh, right? When you're, when you're walking in the flesh, you are weak. In verses 40 through 41, he says this to them. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you could not watch with me even for just one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter to temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There we go. I am in the right spot. Arrogance, independence, self-sufficiency, all these things reduce your ability to face spiritual trials. That, that simple proverb, pride comes before the fall, 
the greater the pride, the greater the fall. These guys had been showing pride all along. Hey, we're, we're, the, we're with the Messiah. We're with Jesus. We're going to get the key seats when the kingdom starts. We're going to be sitting right there. We're going to be judging over all of you. And matter of fact, I'm going to be amongst the judges. I'll be number one. Not you, Thomas. Doubter. I got this one. Their pride is so prideful. They're going to face a heavy fall. How do we get strong in the spirit? How do we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh? We get first, the first and foremost thing is we have to understand that we are weak in and of ourselves. We need to be humble. We need to be dependent on God. How do you show dependence on God? What, should, what is one key indicator of your dependence on God? Prayer. How much you pray and how much you're getting into the Word. Getting into the Word. Why? Because the Word is where we get God's thinking. If we're not in the Word, we say, I'm good with my thinking. Do you get that? I can tell, generally, someone's self-sufficiency by how much they read the Bible and how much they pray. Prayer says, God, I need you. Time in the Word says, God, I need you to change how I think. Because out of my thinking comes my living. If you want, and some of you might, you know, we, we don't, we're not raised naturally thinking this. And if I've said something that kind of shocked you right now, okay, well, now let's start having a more of a commitment to get into God's Word. The more you read, the more God changes how we think. He renews our minds. He conforms our thinking. He transforms us. And he guides us better. He does. The weakness of the flesh, but being strengthened in the spirit. And Paul, he, he, he had a something. God gave him a little reminder that he, that he should be weak. In verses, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So, so to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations he just talked about, he'd been taken up to heaven to see these amazing things. A thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know if it was a person that bugged him and trailed him around or if it actually had a physical ailment. We're not sure. A me- but it was called a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being, becoming conceited. Three times. This is the Apostle Paul. Close connection to God, right? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect or completed in weakness. In God's weakness or his weakness? His weakness. Folks, admitting you're weak and you need God to be God and to be the king and to guide you and direct you because you stink. I say that loud. You stink. You're a sinner. I stink. I'm a sinner. The best way forward is saying, God, help me. When you start comparing yourselves to others, well, I'm better than so-and-so, you're on dangerous ground. I'm on dangerous ground. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest on me, settled upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content, listen to this, content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When those things face us, what do we use? God, take them away. The pressure's too much. Oh. And what is Paul saying? No, these calamities, these hardships, these persecutions make me weak, make me more dependent on God. And that's the place we need to be. The disciples in this passage, God, we got it covered. Jesus saying, no, you don't. And they're going to prove it really quick, aren't they? In the very next passage, they'll show the beginnings of it. We'll see more to come. But I I did want to highlight here, Jesus. I'm calling it the watchfulness of prayer. Notice what Jesus does. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and what he did, he didn't kick them. He didn't say, get up. But for a third time, he went away and he prayed again. His example to us should be something that we say, you know what? I need to do this too. 
He prayed three times, and I've said three is a very important thing in, in Jewish thinking. It's to repeat it means it's the, of, of the utmost importance. Saying the words again, Father, here's what I want in his humanity. I don't want to take this cup. Cup was a symbolism in the Old Testament of the God's divine judgment on the wrath of sin, either on nations or peoples. He's saying, God, if I, if I, if I don't have to do this, if there's another way. In his humanity, he said that. He really felt the anguish of what was ahead of him. He's honest. I love his honesty. Cry out to God. His humility. God, here's what I want, but you know what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, didn't he teach that in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer? He's, he's showing us now. But also, too, notice the Lord's awareness. He knew it was going to happen. He was ready. He was prepared because he had prayed. The disciples were unprepared. They weren't alert. They were sleepy, heavy lids. They weren't watching at the post. What a contrast right in front of us here. And just this simple situation that, you know, going through this and studying this, going, I've, I've heard this story many times. But when you start making the contrast, you're like, wow. I struggle with prayer. Any of you struggle to pray? I'm so busy, and you guys know me, I'm kind of scatterbrained at times, and I'm, you know, oh, too many things going on, blah, blah, blah. Those are our excuses. I need to pray. I need to pray. Folks, you do too. We need to pray. We need to pray. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done everything you can just to stand firm. I missed that part, didn't I? Oh, I went way ahead. So here's what we have. And here's, here's kind of my closing encouragements to us from this passage. First of all, don't miss this. I've been focusing a lot on how the, the disciples blew it, you know, but I, I don't want us to miss this. See the majesty of our Lord Jesus. He was faithful to the end, guys. Because he was faithful, we now have hope. He submitted to the will of his Father. He was submissive. How's that for a word in America today? It goes against our very nature, doesn't it? He was merciful, too, to his falling, failing, weak men. He even promised to restore them. Isn't that cool? Don't miss that. How many of you want God to show you mercy for what you've done? I do. Oh, my goodness, I need him. I need his mercy and his compassion and, and the grace that he offers so freely. But we don't want to miss the, the weakness of ourselves, right? This, we please... Again, I don't want to harp on this too much, but we have to see our own weakness. We are prone to wander. You know, I, I talk to guys all the time. Yeah, when I was younger, I used to struggle with this, and I thought I was over it, and I was so rejoicing, and then it hit me again. Yep. Our struggle against sin is a lifelong process. There's a, a false teaching out there that talks about, talks about Christians being, having the ability to be uh, perfect, sinless. You guys, that's a, it's a big teaching right now. Have you guys heard of let go and let God? That's part of that, that vein of thinking. God never says let go and just let God. He always commands us to do and to fight and to struggle. It's a real warfare against the spiritual forces of weakness and against our own hearts. Got to be honest about that, huh? But we also can help each other, Right? That's what it says, stir each other to love and good deeds. Galatians 6 says if somebody is, is, is stuck and ensnared in sin, go and help them. The body of Christ is here to help each other. When you're struggling in sin, others can help. If you see others struggling in sin, what can you do? Oh, Chris, can you go talk to them? You, I hardly ever hear that here, but I have heard it in the past. I had someone come up to me, hey, I smell alcohol in my friend's breath over there said, well, I don't even know them. Why aren't you talking to them? That's what the Bible says to do. We're here to help each other. 
We got it. We have, but we have to understand that we are prone to wander. We're prone to arrogance and self-sufficiency, and we are in need of the Savior's help. We have to own that we follow the downward spiral and that we should seek to get on the path of restoration, the upward spiral, spiral of humility, confession, and repentance. And then finally, run to his throne of grace. Run, run, run to his throne of grace. Listen to what he says. Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's, in, he's exalted in heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Don't let go of your faith. Hold on tight. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, the Bible, some translations say boldly, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you want grace? Do you want mercy? Run to Jesus. Do you want help in your time of need? Run to Jesus. Don't walk, run. Enter that throne room boldly. He wants you to. He commands, this is a command to do that. Isn't that cool? He knows our weaknesses, folks. And he says, hey, I'll restore you. What a cool promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words to us. Lord, thank you for uh, the disciples and, and just being knuckleheads because I'm just like them. So I thank you for the picture we have of how you dealt with them. So important for us to see. And so, Lord, thank you for, for you know, what we've seen this morning. But God, help us not to just take this in and then forget it as we walk out the door. But, Lord, that we would seek to walk in your ways, that we would seek to know you better, that we would get into your word, that we'd pray more. These simple things, but they're so profoundly important. Lord, and we come to you in our weakness. We need you, Lord. In you, we are strong. Walking with you, if it's just you, if it's just us with you, we've got the God of the universe on our side. But Lord, help us not grow arrogant or self-sufficient thinking we've, we're all that or we've got it all together. We never will this side of eternity. So Lord, help us to be humble people who seek your guidance, who seek you in your word, who seek to, to uh, just to be in your presence. And, Lord, and, and then ask you, Lord, help us, but then help us to help others. So, Lord, thank you for, for this, this, this passage here. Thank you for, even in the midst of your own anguish of the soul, you are still giving us uh, your, your, your own example of how to face temptation. And you even, you even offer hope in the midst of the, them telling them they're going to fulfill prophecy about falling away. And yet you, you offer restoration. So thank you, Lord, for all this. And we just pray that you'd glorify yourselves in our lives this week, Lord, for your glory and your kingdom and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.